Welcome to another in our series of On Further Reflections with Norm Allen. Uh, we've had a few of these videos and podcasts over the last year, and uh, we hope this one will be of uh, interest and some encouragement to uh, you as you have a chance to meet my friend Hugh Brewster, who is uh, sort of the next generation of uh, Touchstone Circles of Friendship. Uh, he and I have been friends for nearly 10 years. And uh, his dad has been a friend of mine for a lot longer than that. But uh, we've been on journey together uh, over that period of time. And he leads one of our younger leaders, our, our younger generation group. I called them the young lean guys when we first got started because they were in their 30s and a lot leaner than me. And uh, they're uh, now what are you, starting to what, catch. Are you, what are you saying? What are you saying, Norm? Say it. Just, just say it to my face. <laughs> But they're starting to see the degradations of age as they get to their mid-40s. And uh, so it's, it's fun. And uh, so Hugh and I have been on journey together. He's an he's a executive director of a, a nonprofit. He's a f husband. He's a father. He's a world-class Frisbee uh, player. Um, so uh, we're going to uh, have a conversation around uh, some of those subjects. And, uh, but first I'll get him to give us a little thumbnail sketch on, on who he is and, uh, and then we'll just chat away for a while. Thanks Norm. Yeah, I think you, you covered the, the, the key themes, I guess, in terms of a thumbnail sketch. I mean, professionally, uh, I started off as a high school teacher, but uh, most of my career has been spent in the nonprofit or, or NGO space. Uh, you know, some stints with UNICEF, uh, 10 years with World Vision, a little bit with Refugee Reception in Toronto. And then currently, I lead a, a small international NGO headquartered in Toronto called Transforming Faces. Uh, where we support teams that care for kids born with cleft lip and palate. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, I, I frisbee, uh, ultimate frisbee is one of the passions of my life, uh, has been for a long time, and uh, I get a lot of joy out of that. Uh, and then definitely my identity as a dad and a father is a huge element of, of who I am. Uh, my eldest is uh, almost 15, going into grade 10. Uh, my middle child is uh, eight and a half, uh, going into grade four. And then my smallest uh, son, uh, child, who's a boy, he's uh, going to be going to JK in the fall. So, so we would have arranged, it's, it's busy times. The pandemic is, is not easy for parents. Um, uh, and I don't think anyone's going to come peek through my little uh, screen here, but it has happened on Zoom calls where I, the little face will appear. I'm like, why is that person looking at me funny? Oh, it's my daughter is peeking through my screen. So this, this might happen, but just be forewarned. Uh, so we'll start right now. Yep, and uh, I've been married for 20 years uh, to my wife, Leanne, uh, whose background's in education and a bunch of other things. And uh, we, we co-own a house. So there's another family uh, that we went, went in on together 14 years ago to sort of split a Toronto house. We each have our own kitchens, our own spaces, but kind of innovative model at that time. And we set up shop here uh, much longer than I thought we, we necessarily thought we would, but uh, we're really happy here in East Toronto. And you're one of those people who takes advantage of the bike lanes in Toronto. So you 100%. Yeah, I think uh, in the last year, I've taken transit to work, you know, maybe two times, you know, so I really am 
now I've, I've graduated from just using my own bike. I'm not a great bike mechanic. So in the wintertime, they have a bike share program. So I bought a year of membership. Anytime it's crappy weather or snow or sleet or rust or whatever, I just borrow the city's bike, get to work and, and, and take it back. Hey, well, one of the things that um, uh, over our 10 years of friendship that has been interesting to observe is sort of you're developing as uh, with more and more responsibility in your vocation. And you're now the, the executive director, as you said, of Transforming Faces, which is a Canadian-based uh, but international uh, work to children who have experienced uh, cleft palate and need not only the surgery, but need all the attendant services in terms of speech therapy and, and, and maybe even dental care and all of that sort of thing that may go on for several years uh, and maybe subsequent surgery. So you, you work quite differently than what most of us would think about uh, surgeons flying over from Canada. So can you talk a bit about the work that you're doing? Sure. Yeah, yeah, delighted to. So I've been uh, with Transforming Faces for over three and a half years now. And uh, I think one of the things that really delighted me as I was considering this job uh, was its model. And, and the first thing, as you mentioned, is, is uh, Transforming Faces is 20 years old now. And from the very beginning, has not relied on uh, you know, flying surgeons from Toronto or elsewhere in to do the work. Uh, so from the beginning, uh, there was some really good advice given to the founders saying, you know what, there are people in Ethiopia, in India, in Peru, who can do this work. Uh, what, they're, what they might be requiring is some funding, they might be requiring some training or some capacity building, uh, but your role can be more of a supporter as opposed to a doer. And uh, I think that that resonates really with my understanding of international development, uh, that uh, eventually we want to we work ourselves out of a job, right? We don't want to continue to do this. And, and so at some stage, you know, when governments have developed and economies have developed to the Point where they can sustain this, we want cleft lip and palate to be something that every family has access to care for, uh, and that every child born with cleft lip and palate would go on to live, uh, be able to live a full life and pursue their dreams. Now, uh, you had a a, um, a a virtual annual meeting, uh, which I attended uh, a few weeks ago, and in there was a video with stories of children and their parents and comments. And what, one of the things that struck me, apart from the, the joy of seeing some of these restored faces, uh, was the, sort of the undergirding uh, spiritual conflict, or whatever you want to call it, that, that people uh, experience shame because it was a curse from God, because, or, and also gratitude to God when they saw you know, the transformed face, uh, so that there was this really interesting nexus of weird religious thinking that connects with the work that you're doing. Certainly. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the context is quite different. Uh, Transforming Faces works in Asia, Africa, and the Americas. So, you know, different beliefs, different uh, worldviews in each of those places. But one thing that does link all the families that we support together is a sense of uh, that in the community there is bias, there's, there's the idea that, that shame should be associated with cleft lip and palate. Uh, and then in some places, definitely, you know, that this is definitely a spiritual problem, you know, that, uh, you know, in India, there can be the belief that this is somehow karma, that if a mother goes outside in a full moon, and this is the punishment to the cleft lip and palate, or um, in, in Myanmar, you know, the idea that maybe you laughed at a child who had a disability and this is your payback. 
uh, in Uganda, the idea that maybe this is a this is a spiritual practice from a neighbor who's out to get you, you know, and this was this is sort of the the manifestation of that would be a child born with cleft lip and palate. Uh, but I think you know our, our hopes for our kids are really much tied up into how we see the world, and uh, in in many places there is this idea that a physical manifestation of something that's different or scary or unusual is actually the reflection of a spiritual reality. And that's very difficult, you know. So on top of the shock uh, of a mother or, or hopefully a parents, you know, seeing a child come into the world uh, that looks different, there's also immediately this, this shame, you know, whose fault was it? You know, who did this to you? Or how could you, you know, how could you produce a child like this? And so, you know, it's quite common, unfortunately, for men in particular to, to disappear uh, in many of the countries in which we work, you know, after a, a a child is given birth that has cleft liver palate, then you know the, the the dad just just takes off. Uh, so there there is a spiritual, I think, uh, element to it. And then also, yeah, that on the other side, as you saw in that short video, um, you know, people will return to to give thanks to God uh, for a successful uh, result if they see that their child, who they thought maybe life was over, there was no hope that they would never move forward. You know, seeing that my child can go on and can can get married, can go to school, can have a you know have a fulfilling life. I mean, that is something that people bring back into their real experience of of, of joy and gratitude to God. Yeah, it's interesting because we have a lot of that strains of that same sort of uh, religious thinking, uh, either in the sense when a tragedy happens uh, that it's a judgment of God on a particular community of people because they're evil or whatever it might be, but they're def definitely different from whoever is exercising the judgment. Or it becomes, you know, why was God not doing something different as opposed to maybe God is present uh, in the surgeons and physiotherapists and uh, speech therapists and all that sort of thing that might go on in, in what you're doing in the face of something that's quite difficult. Because uh, it's also, there's a gender thing there, it sounds like, in the sense that women can become victimized uh, as, and, and blamed uh, for something that is it's just something. Exactly. Yeah, no, there, there is that, that element. I mean, it's different in every country. I don't want to summarize everyone's experience, right. but, but that theme uh, that women disproportionately bear the brunt of community expectations, familial expectations, you know, husband's expectations, uh, that, that's definitely a factor. And, um, you know, I, you talk about here in Canada, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there are manifestations of that. I mean, even in the expression that sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, God wouldn't give you more than you can bear. Or, you know, oh, you know, if you lose a child, then, oh, well, it's God needed another angel. I mean, you know, these right. are really corrosive, unhelpful beliefs that I'm not sure where they come from. There, there's some of them are rooted in a particular faith tradition or Christian tradition. Others are just sort of out there, you know, it's sort of a nice thing to say to somebody. Uh, but, you know, in my experience, it's, it's really, it's a very unhelpful thing to say to somebody. Now, um, just you were telling me earlier this morning that you had just come off a, a video conference with 60 or, plus or more people from around the world with some experts uh, in your area. Obviously, the work isn't going on in a lot of countries because of the pandemic. Maybe it started again in some places, but you've been restricted in not being able to travel. Uh, talk about the what you were doing this morning with the- uh, Sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the other element uh, of that's distinctive about Transforming Faces and, and really exciting for me is that it embraces the idea that, that uh, you know, this 
sort of akin to how you have treatment here in Canada for a cleft lip and palate. It's not just a surgery, right? So surgeries are important. They're critical. You want to have a good surgery uh, to get your child off to a good start. Uh, but kids generally need, especially with a cleft palate, they'll generally need speech therapy in order to communicate clearly. Uh, you know, there'll be challenges often with teeth and with oral hygiene. Uh, there even could be issues with kids' jaws. So, I mean, it requires a team-based approach. And um, so from the beginning, Transforming Faces has been able to embrace saying, yeah, we need a team-based approach. It needs to be multidisciplinary and it needs to have that sense of working together, uh, all the different disciplines. So from the beginning, uh, also because we don't travel individually to do the work, I mean, obviously I, I love to get out and, and be able to train and facilitate discussions, uh, look on strategy, uh, meet with families, uh, but the work itself of treatment happens from locals. Uh, and so uh, the idea of, of trying to do some of that support uh, virtually has been part of how we've had to do things. And then even more so now, so under the pandemic, uh, we had a discussion this morning with three really dynamic speech therapy professionals, one from India, one from Nigeria, uh, one from Santiago de Chile, and uh, each sharing the strategies that they're employing right now to try to reach families during the pandemic. So that has to do with telehealth. You know, how can you use whatever resources are available to be able to do speech therapy by smartphone or by the computer? Um, you know, what else can you be doing in terms of face masks and getting access to, to different types of protective equipment to allow you to continue the work? So the work continues. Uh, it's very difficult. I mean, my heart breaks especially, and I think that was reflected this morning in the discussion, for the most vulnerable. Uh, so I think around the world we're saying, you know, the idea is, is that all, you know, it affects all boats. You know, all of us are in the same sea, but, you know, the way it affects or the, or, or the, the impact of the storm is very disproportionate uh, that the most vulnerable are the most affected. And that's even more so true in, in, in places where, for example, you know, our partner in India was sharing, yeah, there are some families for whom finding enough food for that day is actually a higher priority than speech therapy. And we need to acknowledge that, you know, we need to acknowledge that we can't you know, insist these, these parents bring their kids for speech therapy when they're spending a lot of their, their day under the pandemic where their regular job is interrupted, just making sure that they can feed their, their kids. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that the, the opportunities through Zoom and other media are, are so important and it's something that Transforming Faces is really invested in, as well as the idea of collaborating. So, you know, my sector unfortunately has a real history of competition and some really negative uh, ways of kind of carving out space for each other. And as a smaller organization and a Canadian-based organization in particular, we've been able to, to really try to lean in uh, to the idea of being a catalyst for collaboration. Uh, so this morning's call, we had you know, 60 professionals from about 20 different countries. Uh, and that would be reflective of a, a variety of different cleft NGOs and beyond, academics, et cetera, all saying, no, no, we want to work together to find solutions, to hear one another, and especially to lift up the voices from those leaders in the field, you know, in places that are actually doing the work, uh, as opposed to sort of saying, oh, well, the experts from Toronto, like me or whatever, you know, are the ones that need to be teaching everybody. So that's, that's been an important part of the ethos for TF that I've really appreciated. Now, you were also supposed to be representing Canada in uh, some major uh, Frisbee competition in Australia. Uh, talk a little bit about how you got into Frisbee and, and how you're able to, even in your dotage, uh, able to continue <laughs> to compete at a high level. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, my dotage. Well, um, yes, I am a, a passionate fan of Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, I think I probably started at Pioneer Camp as a, you know, as a, a boy or a teenager where we were throwing around discs, I'm sure playing without any rules. 
Um, but uh, in university at that time, uh, when I got started, was where most people picked up, you know, the sport, you know, with rules and a way of playing and everything else. And from the beginning, you know, it really captured me. I, I'd grown up as a soccer player. Uh, but I think both the combination of the, the, the small, you know, fine motor skills of learning how to throw the disc in all these different ways, uh, combined with the really highly aerobic, you know, you're cutting, you're, you're running, you're, you're always in motion. Those two things really appealed to me. And I think the third element uh, that's always been my passion is team sports. So I, I, mean, I can motivate myself to do training or running or everything on my own, but really it's a means to an end. Like I really like to express that with others and that time, that idea of a team journey, uh, you know, work, people working together, expressing different things. That's been a, a key focus for me. So yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity four years ago uh, to represent Canada at the world championships in, in UK. Uh, and then this time in an older division, so now I'm, I'm in the 40 plus division, but uh, I was selected for the national team to compete in Australia. And unfortunately, you know, along with the Olympics and everything else that's been postponed, uh, hopefully it gets off the ground next year. I mean, we'll have to see whether my finances and everything allow for me to, to try to do it next time. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're waiting to see. And, and it's, it's a joy to compete at the international level too. It's the skies are also, you know, kind of crazy about this sport. So. Now, we started uh, sort of intentional conversation around 10 years ago. I was going back through some, some date books trying to figure out where it, all, uh, where it all started. And we had met, we, had, we knew each other because your dad's a friend of mine for a, a long standing. But uh, we ran into each other at a conference about younger leaders and had a conversation around next generation leadership. And I, when you asked me a couple of questions about what I thought about your generation of leadership, uh, I mentioned that when I was your age at the time, which was in your late 30s, uh, I was starting Touchstone and I had been getting, or I was going, thinking about it and I was getting advice from various people. And I went to a guy who essentially is, was my age in his 60s back then. Um, and he had, he discouraged me completely. Just there was no need for what I was thinking about. And I just realized that I'd never wanted to be that kind of a person. And your generation has to figure out your own way of doing things, but maybe the old guys can, you know, give you a bit of wisdom and perspective on some things, but you still have to develop your own spiritual journey, your own leadership style and all that sort of thing. And uh, so talk a little bit about what fuels your inner person as you go about this, uh, this work and sports and family and all that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's been a, a major blessing in my life is, uh, as I talked about my career, but, you know, I, I've been able to find roles that allow me to express sort of my spiritual beliefs, you know, in a, in a tangible way. Uh, so, um, you know, Transforming Faces, my, the charity I lead is not a religious organization. And yet it, it embraces this idea that even kids born with cleft and palate, you know, are, are important, their story is meaningful, and that, you know, fundamentally, you know, many of our partners around the world would say, yeah, we think that, think of, of kids being a gift from God, or, or in Christian terms, in my own terms, you know, made in God's image, that every, every human person has that, uh, that innate value and, and uh, that call to be able to pursue a full life, you know, over you know, in my case, a lot of times, you know, wrestling against the barriers of poverty. And yet, uh, through that, that sense of accompaniment, you know, that God is, God is rooting for us and, and, and uh, spurring us on to be able to, to really express some of that creativity and joy that we have uh, in us based on our, our createdness. Uh, so, um, 
it's been it's been lovely to to partner with people in places like Ethiopia, Thailand, Myanmar, you know, who who from their own perspectives have really embraced this this particular niche of disability or uh, development work that's at our intersection and and that has really been a, a fuel of passion for me saying you know I want these children to to be able to experience a full life to be able to pursue you know a, a real a meaningful inclusion in their communities uh, and that's a spiritual value for me um, when it comes to to sports uh, you know I think that I, as I as I touched on I think that idea of teamwork you know that that is something you know I um, I think a lot of people experiencing me as kind of an intense, kind of serious guy in some ways, but I mean, that, that, uh, well, that they, they, they definitely experience <laughs> me as an intense, serious guy. And, uh, um, and that's good. Yeah, I think my teammates would probably say the same thing, but there is an emotional element, you know, for me about, you know, that journey of working together, you know, and, and that I experienced in my small team in Toronto. I experienced that in that solidarity of trying to work well, be a good support, uh, to be able to, you know, let others lead in their own context, but be that supportive, but working together, uh, you know, that, that moves me. And, and that, that's some of my greatest joys. I mean, I was just reflecting during this pandemic, I, I, uh, I came across one of those tournament draw sheets. And this was, this was a tournament, you know, where you, you go to the main space, some of you who do sports would know this, and you, you, know, you kind of keep track of whatever else is doing, and they write down the score, and then, you know, if you, you, you make the semis, then you go to the finals or whatever. So someone found that, and that was, this was from five years, well, six years ago now. A tournament. You were a much younger man. Yeah, and that's why I circulated it among, you know, through the pandemic, it was kind of being dropped off on people's porches and went on to the next guy. They would add some comments and put all the way through. But, you know, when I think about a time of great joy and fulfillment in my life, you know, I remember after winning this tournament. So this was a tournament that happened in Winnipeg, and it was for the right to represent Canada. It meant that your team would be the core. You know, obviously, they'd add other people. But if you won this tournament, uh, and it happened to be against our arch nemesis, you know, some of these key guys who'd always beaten us from Vancouver. So, you know, we worked all the way through the tournament for this moment, and, the, and it was in doubt. You know, we were behind. We might not pull it out. And then we came and we, we triumphed. And I remember we were sitting back, you know, with a beer, looking, you know, where all of us, our socks are off, and we're just looking out at the sunset and think, this is amazing. You know, we did it. You know, we, we worked for, you know, months and months and months, years, really, to get to this point. And now, you know, that, that payoff is like, hey, we're going to represent Canada in a big tournament. So uh, I think that idea of, of both the created, you know, that, that, that being created in God's image, but also that sense of wanting to work together, of having a story that leads people to really be motivated on a, on a vision, on, you know, with passion, to pursue a goal together, to really appreciate one another. That's something that for me in Frisbee has been really true. And, and thankfully, you know, I've been able to experience quite a bit of that in my professional life as well. And in one of the places where we connect is in the area of contemplative prayer and in spiritual friendship, the concept that we try to develop some inner stillness so that we can listen to the moves of the spirit in our own lives and then conceivably partner up with some friends and do the same thing for each other. Uh, so that team thing, you've been part of helping create a group that, that uh, we work together with a couple of other fellows uh, nearly 10 years ago to create and you're now meeting uh, regularly. Can you talk a little bit about that team and what you do together? Yeah, and I think that ties a little bit into your question about the, the younger leaders and even if we're not so young anymore, but uh, we've really developed over time, 
you know, a liturgy or an agenda of, of how we meet that's been really helpful. Um, so for us, uh, you know, it's all, it's all men, all dads, all uh, husbands, you know, who are, who are trying to, to do well in all of those areas. And um, as opposed to having, you know, while I give some leadership or, you know, my friend uh, Tim uh, gives leadership to the structure and to making things work, really when we show up on a, on a Wednesday morning on Zoom right now, for example, you know, there's, it's not like someone's developed a, a study to take us through, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a moment of centering around some of these um, contemplative prayer. That, that's really helpful. I think it, it really anticipates a little bit that we started what we started this current fad of having, and not, maybe it's hopefully it's more than a fad, but I mean, this idea of having an app that helps you be mindful or do some meditation. I mean, we have that sense of centering in. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage from scripture that we read a couple times together out loud uh, that we spend some time just thinking about what resonates, you know, from the news into that passage or in our own lives. Uh, and then we move to a time of just doing some updates on those key elements that are happening in our life and all those spheres, you know, and, and maybe allowing some of that sacred story that we looked at that morning to inform our discussion or challenge us in new ways. Uh, and that's been a, you know, sort of an agenda that's kind of worked itself through and you know has had some ebbs and flows but there really is a core group of guys who look forward to it you know weekly uh to to be able to to come and and go through this we know what we expect out of the time and then there really is some some excellent trust and understanding that's built between the guys in this kind of team element as you as you brought up like i think one of the things that you do well and i think when we're on our game in in our circles in our little racket here at touchstone uh it, it's understanding that we're part of this ongoing story of God's engagement with humanity, as opposed to each, each spiritual event is sort of a transaction. And so all you're doing is picking up a conversation that goes on. Many people are doing their own intentional praying on their own, but at the same time, you're connecting once a week uh, as part of an ongoing story. It's not, okay, now this is our religious moment. This is just a conversation about what's going on uh, in our story. And, uh, and I think you guys uh, have done a good job of, of that particular thing. One of the other uh, places where uh, you and I started to meet sort of on a regular basis for a while, uh, you experienced a significant loss uh, around 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that because that's, a, that's been a very shaping experience uh, for you and Leanne and, uh, and many of many of us who've watched you process this thing. Thank you. Yeah, and I think the the group, you know, at that time at least, uh, and and definitely through the through the the years since, has been helpful for me in in sort of processing some of that experience, uh, which was, uh, you know, ten years ago. Um, I guess it's more like almost 11 years ago. I guess now, uh, my wife and I were pregnant with our second child. Uh, it had been a bit of a definitely a difficult journey to get to that second second pregnancy uh, and um, you know about halfway through you know had a an ultrasound routine that that was routine until it started not being routine you know until the until it started saying well just let me check one more thing and uh, maybe we see check somewhere and, and then oh well, why don't the two of you wait outside you know while I look at something else and of course we're looking at each other thinking what what is this this can't be good um, and, you know, probably, you know, one of the most difficult days of my life, you know, sort of waiting from there to get referred to somebody else. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, 
having someone with some authority saying, you know, based on what we've seen, you know, that, that we don't expect your, your child to have, uh, you know, a long life outside the womb. And, you know, basically we, you know, this should be, you know, we should be scheduling uh, to, to end this pregnancy. So, I mean, that, that's, you know, a bit of a, a shortened version, but, uh, you know, obviously devastating, you know, all the different words and, and, um, you know, I think as we think about what our own commitments without talking about anyone else's or anything, you know, any, anybody else's story, but for us, my wife Leanne and I both had a strong sense that uh, since our son was totally healthy, happy as far as we knew, you know, doing all the right things inside the womb, uh, that our responsibility to be parents, whatever that looked like, would extend further, you know, that our child wasn't in any pain, there was no nothing else that was wrong, except that uh, once once uh, our son made it outside of the womb, uh, his life was likely going to be quite short. Uh, and so, so there was a journey, you know, then of months, you know, of, of looking forward to his birth, but also grieving his birth, um, you know, looking forward to what was coming and being grateful and yet also having such profound sadness, you know, of our, of our dreams for, for our son likely being crushed. Um, and, and yet holding on to some other hope that this was still the, the right and faithful thing to do to, to continue this story as long as it could. And, and I think, you know, he, he was born and, uh, and you know, his, his sojourn on this side of the womb was quite short. And that was a huge disappointment, even amidst a, a, larger, uh, a larger season of sorrow. That was even still a, a very big disappointment uh, and, and very difficult. And you ended up... Um having to make choices that obviously he and his name, you named him Josiah That's right. uh, and you did have a funeral. And so you did all the, the things that maybe went against what was expected, um, but treated him with the same dignity that you would have treated any other child, which is one of your core values as you expressed it as it related to transforming faces, but it's something that's a core of who you and Leanne are. And, uh, and yet then, even though that then was sorrowful, then you had lots of time over the next years to process grief and both of you processing it differently. And so out of all of that, uh, what are the lessons that you have learned uh, out of the experience? Hmm. Yeah, and I think that that is... Uh... Um, you know, helpful observation that it's, it's not a question of, you know, months or weeks of, of journeying, you know, there was a, a journey to get to the pregnancy, there's a journey uh, to the to, to Josiah's birth, and then there's definitely been, an, you know, an ongoing journey since his, his death. Uh, and uh, I think my wife, who, who has done quite a bit of thinking and study about grief, you know, wouldn't describe grief as something that you get over, uh, but you, you're, you're hopefully moving to a space of integration, you know, where or my son's life and death uh, is just part of part of who I am and part of the story, uh, and and obviously has emotion attached to it, but is not something that's debilitating, you know, on a daily basis at this point. But it's um, not. It's not like it disappears. No, no, it's it's integration, right? It's part of part of who we are and who I am, uh, and who who my wife and I are, my family, my family is. Like a, friend um, mine, a friend of mine, he lost. Uh, um, a daughter uh, to suicide when she was a teenager and it's a long long time ago 25 years or more and he says you never get over it but it's soil out of which the rest of your life grows so it, it becomes a place from which other things emerge 
uh, capacity to care for others, whatever it might be. And I, my observation would be that that's been part of your formation and your capacity for friendship with others and, and compassion for the world or whatever. Certainly. Yeah. Definitely learned a lot, uh, through that experience. I mean, I think one of the things, uh, that I try to be more intentional about is, is when someone's going through something devastating and horrible, uh, you know, trying not to just shy away, trying to lean in. Uh, and so I think I've learned it's, it's often people, you know, for good reason are trying to manage their own insecurities, their own hurts, their own fear of messing up. Uh, and so their, their response can be to say nothing or to withdraw. Uh, and I think I've seen up close that that can be quite painful. You know, obviously, uh, our story was was one of great support. You know, uh, you know, at the church community we were part of at the time, you know, sent people over to do our dishes, you know, in the evenings so that my wife and I could have a chance to chat or just to be quiet at the end of the day. Um, we had friends who were very, you know, willing and faithful to walk alongside and just journey with us. And yet, you know, you also remember, you know, the 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 assumptions that people can bring of the things people can say you know such as, as you mentioned you know like a professional a health professional you know counselor saying well no one would ever have a have a, a funeral for an infant I mean who knows the infant you know and, and and just you know that that does stick I mean you know vulnerable time you know saying the wrong thing does uh, does hurt and yet uh, the answer is not to say nothing right the answer is to be invitational and I think I've learned a little bit about that with my group or with other friends you know saying how can I make myself a little bit uncomfortable as someone who's more secure right now and less vulnerable how can i make myself uh be the one that's a little bit uncomfortable and in, in engaging and offering the opportunity for someone to to share if they want uh but also being quite willing to step back if the person gives the signal saying you know I, I hear you and no that's not or or even you know being specific about the ways i could help i mean i think lots of people would say oh let me know if i can do anything but if you're in a really dark space if you're going through something traumatic um, it's really difficult to reach out and say, hey, would you do this for me? So I've learned, obviously, it's more helpful to say, would this be helpful? Can I do this one thing for you? Or would you accept this? And the person can always say no, and that might hurt a little bit, but obviously they're the ones you're trying to, <laughs> so making yourself a little bit uncomfortable to make them feel more comfortable, I think, is a, is a key practice in spiritual friendship. Yeah, and I think that you're on to sort of the, a couple of the core things that we've over the years learned, and I still don't practice as well as I wish, but in the sense that, uh, when you're coming to people, uh, you're coming to serve not your own needs, but whatever needs may ultimately be revealed. And sometimes our expectation or our definition of what their needs are is actually not accurate. And so going and listening and then waiting for invitation to participate at whatever level people invite us to participate uh, becomes, uh, you know, it's a discipline. And uh, so there's so much of what we do, we're trying to, in a sense, fulfill either, as to your point, our own insecurity, uh, but go be present. And you never know, something may just show up that you can go do or whatever. But mm -hmm. by being present and then being invited and letting other people set the terms of the relationship, you, there's a kind of freedom in that that, that uh, becomes quite, uh, quite enriching. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, um, we've uh, covered a fair bit of ground today. Um, one of the things that I've appreciated about you, our, my relationship with you is that you're a plain spoken fellow. Um, you do provide some significant leadership to that group uh, that, that it meets. Uh, we had a hilarious kind of in exchange when the Zoom thing started. Uh, you made the mistake of inviting me to participate in the first Zoom meeting of your group. 
And I was thrilled. I thought, this is great. I get to see these guys. And I participated uh, in my own particular way. And um, apparently, uh, so then I was looking for the invitation for the following week, and I couldn't find it in my calendar. So I emailed you and your partner in crime and said, I, don't, I can't find the invitation. And he said, well, I deliberately didn't invite you because you changed the nature of what we do. And uh, so you've decided that I can help. And so once a month I get to participate and maybe bring up an idea to consider. But it was really a, a liberating thing for me to discover, okay, I would love to participate because I have a need to be engaged. And I'm trying to find my way in this Zoom world. And yet I had to figure out, okay, do I really want to help or do I just want to be stimulated? And so the capacity you guys had to actually say, no, you're not helpful in this way, but you are helpful in this way was really, a, it was, it was like a perfect uh, kind of conversation. And so I'm, I'm grateful uh, for that uh, experience that, that we've shared together. Um, and it, and I then was able to pass that on to our group that's 10 years, your junior. And, uh, so they managed to say, okay, Norm, don't come and participate in our Zoom stuff either. So it, 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 there is something about, uh, being able to f be honest with each other about the helping process, uh, that really is liberating for everybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, you identify some of the un uncomfortableness too of renegotiating roles, right? So, you know, our group really appreciates you and everything else. And yet we want to acknowledge, you know, there is a different dynamic when there's someone who's older and wiser and, you know, looks more handsome. No, no, just, maybe. Just, just older. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there is an incredible resonance, I think, to my professional life too. I mean, as a, you know, Canadian based NGO, you know, we don't want to be the stars of the show. You know, when we're thinking about cleft and palate care, we want the people working in Ethiopia to be the stars of the show. And eventually we want the governments to take over the role that we're fighting even around funding. And that's hard, you know, and I think some of my other colleagues in the charity world, you know, find that even harder because, you know, there is something fulfilling about traveling over and, you know, doing surgeries or whatever it is. The reality is that you're stuck in a paradigm you know, that is actually causing a lot more trouble. You, you know, there is a way for you to be helpful. And I think that's, you know, the line, obviously at Transforming Things that we're trying to walk is how we can be helpful with the resources and the situation and the expertise that we have. And yet, how can we not be the stars of the show? How can we not be indispensable? How can we be flexible to move? And I think that's part of a spiritual friendship group too, is, is saying leadership's important, structure is really important. And yet, um, how can we build it? And I think that's what our group has been able to do is then yeah, sure, there's Tim and I and a few other, you know, who, who play some leadership roles. And yet I'm not showing up to be like, okay, here's Hugh's five reflections on this passage this week and Tim's gonna be next week and whoever else. It's like, no, we've got a bit of a sense of how it works. Anyone can run it. You know, uh, we all hold each other accountable. Maybe I'm gonna be holding people a little bit more accountable if they're, you know, if they're not fulfilling what you know, our accountability is or whatever else. But in general, everyone can say, no, I'm gonna do this or how about this question? So you're getting out of that situation, which is what I wanna do in my professional life too, of saying, no, it's not just like question, you know, leader says something, someone else answers, leader says something else, someone else answers, you know, it's like, let's, let's build this like a web, right? We all have something to learn. We all have something to offer. And, and that's been something that really animates me and has kept us involved and kept me involved for, for nine years. Yeah, it's an interesting. Years ago, there was an article in Foreign Policy magazine or its equivalent uh, about the new colonialism. And it talked about the fact that NGOs and World Bank and 
all that sort of stuff were becoming the new colonialists because they were the people going into developing countries to build infrastructure because they could, and it was the consulting firms because they had access to capital and resources. And so you were having then stealing the best and brightest from the country uh, from say government or healthcare or whatever, going into the, the system that became self-perpetuating. And so it is a, there is a danger there and it, and it's a spiritual danger that we, we can have where uh, for our own need of being valued that we want to impose ourselves in situations where our value isn't actually there. And uh, we're still valuable, but we're not valued. It's, we're not value added for that circumstance. So any, any final thoughts before I offer a little Celtic blessing on, uh, on our time? Uh I mean, I just, I think, you know, another theme is just that there is a space and a need, I guess, you know, back to the core mission of Touchstone and your mission, you know, uh, my experience has been with guys, but, um, you know, that sense of intentionality of having a structure that you work through and, and of sticking with it for the longer haul, uh, that is not something many guys have met, uh, a need people have met elsewhere, you know? Uh, and so I think that that's been some of the richness that I've experienced and, and then, you know, started off as something nine years ago. I was like, oh, how long do I stick with this? Like, this is, you know, and it's something that I look forward to uh, every week, you know, and, and I think that that, that is that the, there's a payoff, I guess, of, of committing to that sort of thing. But it's not like, you know, committing in a sense of something that's horrible and you're kind of make it work because you have to. But really that sense of, no, you want to be part of this because there's not other opportunities to speak into guys' lives. And then also just the kinds of professional challenges. I mean, professionally, I, you know, I could write that off that time if I wanted to, you know, as leadership development, because I'm hearing from these really amazing leaders on the challenges that they're facing. It's making me think about how I'm approaching these different challenges. And our group is actually quite good about sharing, you know, resources from, you know, the, the new statesman or, you know, from wherever that people are reading and thinking about because it enriches us. So it's kind of a whole package, which is quite lovely. Yeah. And that's the thing that we, we've talked about that you, you're not, you're not doing a particular in that hour, you're not trying to do a particular religious event or transaction. This is just part of the ongoing story of your lives together, the ongoing story of God's work with us as human beings. And so there's a, there's a benefit to seeing it as a, as an ongoing thing. Like, obviously we've got groups where people have been, you know, meeting together for 35 years. And so the, what you learn about each other over that period of time is becomes quite extraordinary. And the, the ability to say that person knows me and knows my ups and downs and knows my history and then can speak something into my life in a kind way. There's something about that, that only time, and experience and intentionality can can develop. Anyway, thank you, Hugh, for taking the time. And uh, let me read this uh, uh, blessing for the inner journey from a book called Anam Karas or Soul Friend by John O'Donohue. Um, it's a lovely uh, little piece. May you recognize in your life the presence, power, and light of your soul. May you realize that you are never alone that your soul and its brightness and belonging connects you intimately with the rhythm of the universe. May you have respect for your own individuality and difference. May you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, that behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful, good, and eternal happening. 
May you learn to see yourself with the same delight, pride, and expectation with which God sees you in every moment. Amen and amen. So thank you, friend. And um, I'll look forward to seeing you when uh, pandemic world is over and uh, we can be face to face. Tell me, tell me when that's going to be. I'd be really helpful for my planning. I, uh, I have no skill in the prophecy area. I'm a salesman. So <laughs> thanks, Norm. See you, buddy. Take care. Bye. Bye.